A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Guys, this is so exciting. The return of John Bolton's mustache. Ooh. If that sounds like a Star Wars episode. Like a sequel. I think it's a phantom menace. The stash menace? <laughs> it's a phantom the phantom menace. stash? It is definitely not phantom. Revenge of the stash. <laughs> the stash is like the force. I mean, it is sort of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. How about the stash hmm. awakens? Yeah. Was <laughs> it ever asleep? A idea here. What about the stash <laughs> strikes back? Oh, there it is. That's it. And which also references the only good Star Wars film ever made, except for If there is an empire in this analogy, it's definitely John Bolton's mustache. He okay. <laughs> could be living in it. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Stash Strikes Back edition. Stash. Bum, 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 <laughs> That's good. Is that copyright? I hope it's not. It's a good uh, thing we have a lawyer use. on the podcast. This yeah, open, uh, like a new, who's done IP work. No, <laughs> I think it's fair use. Have you I'm ever? Going with fair use all the way. <laughs> I am here in the remote jungle studio, one of the many day, with my good friends Ben Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and our very special guest, David Chris. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having hey. me. David, you are you are known to Lawfare podcast listeners, of which I'm sure there's a fair overlap, but uh, this so is sorry. your first time. <laughs> this is your first time on Rational Security, though. Yes, it's quite an honor, and I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for And, and you're allowed me. to curse on Rational Security. That's, that's oh, yeah. really? an, an important fucking difference. Encouraged, really. Oh my goodness! If I really let my freak flag fly, you don't know that's what would happen. True. That's but, um, true. I'm that's grateful true. for the notice. Do you still have a security clearance, David? Do you still need one? I still gonna... have one, yes, and mm-hmm. I still. So I, I guess, if cursing is a basis to revoke it these days, I better watch my p's and q's. <laughs> I don't know that you ever would have gotten it if that were true. <laughs> there yeah, was this time bit... when David came on the Lawfare podcast, not knowing we were recording. And oh, let shit. loose this incredible stream of profanity mm. and had everybody in stitches. And then I said, you do know we're recording this for the podcast. And there was this long pause. <laughs> and he said, no, I didn't know that. Well, there goes my career. Uh, but we erased it. But it's Thank legendary in lawfare circles. Uh, I appreciate appreciate your discretion as well as the fact that you've revealed it just now. Well, (laughs) I I didn't reveal what you said. Right. So I could. I use many bad words. David, that was just the metadata. It's fine. Right. Okay, good. Nothing to worry about. (laughs) Not the content. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, boy. On the podcast this week, John Bolton, you remember him, is finally, finally publishing his tell-all book, and the White House is striking back maybe should have been the white house strikes back well we'll see if they strike back the empire strikes back i don't know i mean you know is it really going to be as forceful as an empire we'll see i mean actually bolton is kind of a darth vader like figure here right he was he's uh trying to be redeemed at the end 
The important thing is that we explore the title analogy just as far as we can possibly take it. (laughs) Yeah, just drive this horse. This is what rational security listeners want. Definitely, definitely. A CIA investigation blames woefully lax computer security for the biggest leak in the agency's history. And experts weigh in on how to change U.S. national security to prepare for the next pandemic. So let's start with our friend, the mustachioed Mr. Bolton. Ben, I want to start with you on this one. We've talked on the podcast a bit about the steps that the White House can take to try to stop Bolton. We'll get to that. But as a preliminary matter, talk about whether you think Bolton's book even matters at this point. I think most people are hoping that he will add to our understanding of the Ukraine affair, maybe more about how Trump operates. We kind of had a bit of a debate last week, even on this subject. But now that we are on the eve of this really coming, does it matter? I mean, is there and and, and what is the point of reading John Bolton's 500 page contribution to the Trump era? Look, of course it matters. And I say this in no sense as a character reference for John Bolton, who has behaved abominably. And Bolton's position is basically, I can refuse a House request to testify, invite a Senate request, as though you you sort of get to choose in which House of Congress you tell your story. And then despite having refused the House request on the basis of purported executive privilege, waive that myself over the objections of the White House when it comes to publishing a book. And so Bolton's own position is, you know, just at a conceptual level, I think makes no sense. And at a moral level, if this is an important story about the president's fitness, which is how his publisher is describing it. It should have been an important story about his pres- the president's fitness when the president's fitness was being evaluated by Congress. And so to the many people out there who have a kind of, to heck with this guy, you missed your chance attitude, I have a lot of sympathy. And that said, John Bolton is a very smart man. He is also the most senior national security official to come forward and tell his story in a in a full fashion. So, yes, uh, Jim Comey told us everything he knew, but Jim Comey's interactions with the president were scattered and occasional and all packed into a very short period of time before he was fired. Right. And Jim Mattis has given us a a judgment of the president, but he has not told the stories that inform that judgment. Uh, And, you know, Omarosa is Omarosa, right? She's not a senior national security official. And so, uh, yes, I think there is something significant, important, and necessarily consequential when John Bolton is admittedly, belatedly willing to come forward and tell the story of who in his experience Donald Trump is and what his leadership means. And the fact that he's doing it in the run-up to an election actually makes it more important than, say, if it happened next year. And so I I think it's inherently important. I wish it had happened under other circumstances. But look, if the question is, should people buy the book? 
I don't, you know, have a recommendation on that people should do what they're comfortable with. If the question is, should people absorb the information in the book? Absolutely. Susan, I don't know whether you plan on buying the book, but there is a question here about what legal remedies the White House now has. It seems impossible. You'll correct me if I'm wrong in this. If they're going to stop a publication of the book, I mean that 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 train has left the station. But what are things that they can do, or they are contemplating doing, to try and punish John Bolton or potentially restrict people's access to the book? Yeah. So, I mean, as a technical matter, they are trying to stop publication of the book. So essentially what the White House has done is filed a civil suit against John Bolton um, requesting what's called a preliminary injunction to essentially prevent this book from being published. Now, the the sort of basis here, it's not criminal charges. Essentially, this is a contract dispute between Bolton and the government. So as a condition of getting a security clearance, you have a non-disclosure agreement. Part of that non-disclosure agreement is that once you leave the government, if you write about particular a sort of ill-defined issue set related to your government service, classified information you may have learned, you will give the government the opportunity to review it in this pre-publication review process. And if you breach that obligation, and including including having your security clearance revoked or, or not being granted one in the future, the government can also sue you, right, and, and actually seize, uh, seize the proceeds of your book. And, and they've done that in the past. Now, I, I think the government is really, really unlikely to prevent John Bolton's book from being published on, I think, June 23rd is the publication date, in part because you have to show a likelihood of irreparable harm this book is already out there. It's sitting in warehouses. Uh, you know, Stephen Colbert is like showing pictures of himself holding the book. And so for the government to argue that, hey, publication of this allegedly classified information is going to cause irreparable harm, well, without the injunction, well, the harm has already occurred. So I think the government's really unlikely to prevail on that. Um, but I actually do think the government likely can and probably will win on the issue of disgorging John Bolton's pro- uh, profits. And and I do think we should be clear of two things. One, John Bolton really did break the rules here, right? You are not allowed to do this until you have final sign-off. And and the rules here are unambiguous. Um, Layered on top of that, though, is that the government is clearly acting in bad faith. The pre-publication review process is supposed to be for the genuine identification of classified material for security and national security purposes. It's not to prevent people from saying embarrassing things about the president. And so it's sort of this this really, really complex ball that we're in, in which there are no sympathetic actors, of course, because John Bolton's hardly sympathetic. This is a plain abuse of power by the president. Um, It's hard to feel all that sorry for or Senate Republicans, for example, who actually voted not to call John Bolton as a witness and not to hear this information, you know, but also be really, really concerned about the sort of implications for chilling free speech and and just kind of the brazen abuse of power and, and brazen abuse of classification authorities. You know, I, I imagine David will have um, thoughts on the pre-publication review process more generally as well, but it's a really, really bad, ambiguous, difficult to navigate system. Um, and yet it's necessary for people who want to leave the government and talk about this stuff and not run afoul of genuine security issues. And so this is already such a complex area crying out for reform. And to now have, 
I think to my mind, what is blatant bad faith by, by, by the administration, you know, somebody, the reviewing officer clearing the book as not having classified information. And then Michael Ellis, a government official, a White House official, inserting himself into the process to, to claim some other foreign policy information was possibly classified. I, I think it's pretty clear what they're up to. And, and I think it's pretty clear that it shouldn't be tolerable. Before we go to David, we just have some breaking news here. The New York Times' Peter Baker is actually up just a few minutes ago uh, with a quick preview of the book, which they got a hold of. Uh, Under the headline, Bolton says Trump impeachment inquiry should have looked at actions beyond Ukraine. And Peter writes, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, says in his new book that the House and its impeachment inquiry should have investigated President Trump, not just for pressuring Ukraine to incriminate his domestic foes, but for a variety of instances when he sought to intervene in law enforcement matters for political reasons. Mr. Bolton describes several episodes where the president expressed his willingness to halt criminal investigations, quote, to, in effect, give personal favors to dictators he liked, end quote, citing cases involving major firms in China and Turkey. Bolton writes, the pattern looked like obstruction of justice as a way of life, which we couldn't accept. And the Washington Post just sent out an alert that he also says that Trump asked Chinese President Xi to intervene in the 2020 election. Right. So I think we maybe just answered the question we had at the beginning, which is this this book worth reading. Um, David, I would love to get your first thoughts on this. I mean, including, okay, you know, let's recall that, you know, as we've said many times on the podcast, you know, John Bolton would not testify uh, or did not testify uh, in the House impeachment inquiry. Here he is in a book saying, boy, you think that Ukraine was what you should have impeached the president for. How about all of this other stuff? So first thoughts to that. And then as somebody who is well acquainted with the Publication Review Board, I would love to know what you think about how Bolton behaved and how the White House behaved in this process. Yeah, well, on the first question, I guess I think I'm more more or less with Ben and Susan, which is that in terms of criticizing Congress for uh, not getting access to the information that he had uh, in the impeachment proceedings. Bolton is on thin ice and looks ridiculous in some ways making that claim uh, as to whether the information he has is going to be interesting and valuable. I think it probably will be, uh, not just based on these teasers we just heard. In terms of how the pre-publication review process has been, and I do spend a lot of time in pre-publication review, I would say, no, this is not normal. The normal approach to pre-publication review, frankly, is either to obey and go all the way through the process with the government or to skip it and roll the dice and take your chances or sue, probably in this case to sue early on. So it's either a honey or a vinegar approach to get the flies. I myself use the honey approach. That's mostly begging and pleading and crying and whining because I currently advise them and have clearance and, you know, I'm a nice guy, whatever. But it's also definitely not normal on the U.S. government side from what I can see. Um, I often get really frustrated with pre-publication review. Um, It does cause a lot of delay and and has other effects. But I don't normally have the sense that I am being subject to some kind of politicized process. And I think here it does look that way. And I think Bolton fundamentally is gambling that when the procedural history of the review that he underwent is aired out and revealed, it's going to undermine what you might say is the presumption of regularity or the thumb on the scale in favor of the government in in, uh, these kinds of cases, and that he's going to come out 
okay. Um, he's taken quite a gamble there because not just constructive trust for the profits from the book, but potentially more serious charges follow, you know, if it really is classified. Um, I think like a lot of people, probably, he thinks he has a very good sense of what the government can legitimately say is classified in his field of endeavor. He's been doing it for a long time. I know I feel that I have a very good sense. And most often, in fact, almost all the time, the government agrees with my submissions. I mean, for me, it's mostly a question of self-censorship. I am writing everything I write with an eye towards easing and facilitating pre-publication review, which means I'm sourcing heavily, I'm phrasing in a way that mirrors public officially released documents. I'm always thinking when I write about what comes next and hoping to do you know, a quick and easy pre-publication review rather than a long and painful one. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the latter. Um, so what's going on here is weird on from both directions. And I think a lot is going to depend on whether in light of the history between Bolton and the NSC reviewers, a court will agree or not with whatever DOJ can identify in the manuscript that they claim is actually classified. Susan, you had a quick point. Yeah, one important point I think that's worth sort of teasing out about what David just said is this self-censorship and ambiguity is is by design, right? So there are lots and lots of questions. I can't tell you the number of times people have asked me um, or I've spoken to sitting government attorneys about what the policy is on leaked information that is still formally classified and uh, linking to it or writing about it for somebody who holds a current security clearance. And the range of answers and non-answers is really, really surprising, right? That, that there wouldn't be clear, consistent answers on, on how to handle these issues. And I think the reason for that is because any ambiguity sort of, you know, it, it inures to the, to the government's favor because it, either people will self-censor or if you end up writing something that the government doesn't like or thinks is a security concern, um, you know, they, they always have that remedy. And so as soon as they set a clear rule about what you can write about, um, that's going to encourage more writing. And so it's um, it's one of these cases in which the, the system itself, you know, sort of depends on people not being perfectly sure about what they're really able to say and, and also on dramatically different rules for different people. Um, and, and that's just the basis of something really, really problematic. Um, and frankly, it's uh, it's a testament to the good faith of prior administrations that we haven't had as astonishing a case of, of abuse of pre-publication review as we're seeing right now that, that we haven't seen this in the past. I just want to read from an excerpt that the Wall Street Journal has just gone up with from the book. So this is under John Bolton's byline. It is both interesting but bears directly on the question of the pre-publication review. Uh, he writes about a meeting that President Trump had in Osaka with President Xi uh, of China uh, when she told Trump that US, the U.S.-China relationship was the most important in the world. Uh, and he said that some unnamed American political figures were making erroneous judgments by calling for a new Cold War with China. And Bolton writes, whether she meant to figure the Democrats or some of us sitting on the U.S. side of the table, I don't know. But Trump immediately assumed that she meant Democrats. Trump said approvingly that there was great hostility to China among the Democrats. Trump then stunningly turned the conversation to the coming U.S. presidential election, alluding to China's economic capability and pleading with Xi to ensure that he'd win. 
He stressed the importance of farmers and increased Chinese purchases of soybeans and wheat in the electoral outcome. So here he is inviting the president of China to intervene in the election. And then Bolton writes to the point of this discussion, I would print Trump's exact words, but the government's pre-publication review process has decided otherwise. Fascinating. So there he is saying that the PRB is... Do me a favor, though, Shane. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It was a perfect conversation. conversation. Can I just interrupt with a rant here and say, why (laughs) the hell would John Bolton not tell that to the United States Congress during impeachment hearings? Like, this just... Yes, it's shocking and we need to take it seriously and and we need to have a serious question about the president of the United States. But like, what on earth was John Bolton doing playing games with the House when they'd issued a subpoena? And when the and when Senate Republicans refused to subpoena him, why did he sit on this for another five months? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Well, when he's on fresh air with Terry Gross, she can ask Strategery or must be the explanation. Um, David, you wanted to make a quick point too. As I just wanted to say, you know, uh, uh, one of the many strands of perfect storm and misery we're dealing with these days, you know, includes the pandemic. And I mean, I think for those of us who want to do and do pre-publication review for basically everything, um, including that Biden piece I I did uh, just a while back, you know, right now, as far as I can tell, due to the pandemic, at least NSA and FBI and possibly other agencies are are shut down for pre-publication review. So unless you really lean in and get a special treatment uh, or, you know, sort of a one-off extraordinary effort by them. They don't have folks in the office doing it. And so I know I am inclined to pursue oral discussions these days um, because I don't have much hope that any written product's going to get through. The annual supplement to my extremely boring legal treatise uh, was filed in February, early February, first half of February. And I have no confidence it will be cleared this calendar year. Maybe it will. I hope it will. But so the the coronavirus has had impacts that are far more significant than this across a whole wide variety of national security and other fronts. But one of the things it's done is it has severely uh, slowed down, if not stopped, pre-publication review. And I think, therefore, is going to make it hard for outsiders, formers to write if they want to go through that process before publishing. Right. Well, John Bolton is not the only person who has put government secrets and dish into the public domain. This is a much sexier segue than than probably what the subject was justifies. But uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the so-called Vault 7 disclosure on the podcast before. This is the the leak of CIA hacking tools, uh, which were published on WikiLeaks a couple of years ago, which the CIA has publicly described as the biggest loss of classified data in the agency's history. Maybe they wouldn't call it the biggest leak ever or the biggest disclosure. I mean, the Ames case and others might, uh, which caused loss of life obviously might be a little higher on the scale, but in terms of just the sheer volume of information, this was number one, and it led, officials have said, to uh, intelligence gathering operations being exposed and shut down and, and basically told our adversaries a lot about how we go about hacking technology to gather foreign intelligence. Um, my colleague Ellen Nakashima and I broke a story this week about an internal report by the CIA's WikiLeaks task force, uh, which basically did an after action on this to say, what the hell happened here? Uh, And what they determined was that the computer security within this particular unit 
that does that did the construction of these uh, computer exploitation hacking tools uh, was, as they put it, woefully lax. And they actually found that they put, as they put it, developing cyber weapons ahead of securing their own systems. Susan, you know, this, this is a pretty damning report, and it's actually written in a fairly I thought unbureaucratic way. It actually is quite not quite colloquial, but it, it reads like you know the agency giving some sort of tough love to its own a little bit, which is I guess essentially what it was trying to be. But this followed this leak nearly by nearly three years. The Snowden disclosures from NSA. WikiLeaks was at the time a well-known publisher of government secrets. So why wasn't the CIA better defended and did it fail to learn from those earlier lessons about how to protect its own information? Yeah, I think the story for the government is even worse than the picture you're painting, Shane. It wasn't just that we were three years post-Snowden. It's that the shadow brokers intrusion and release of NSA tools were happening at the same time. Um, This question of a former NSA employee, Hal Martin, um, who had taken large amounts of classified information uh, out of the agency and to his home for purposes that uh, still aren't clear at this point. Um, You know, this is all going on at the exact same time and really, really painting a picture of an intelligence community writ large that has not learned the even the easy lessons. And, and there, there's really, really difficult questions here. Um, but but one of the things that's sort of striking about this report, and I agree with you, it's um it, it's quite candid in its tone, um, is that this this um, uh, mission group at CIA wasn't even doing sort of the the basic obvious stuff that they had no controls uh you know to prevent removable media, things like thumb drives, um, sensitive tools weren't being um, compartmented, um, they were sharing system administrative level passwords. Um, you know, these are things that, you know, if, if you haven't learned that lesson by now, um, you know, it, it's hard to imagine sort of, uh, you know, what what would cause the intelligence community to, to sort of get its act together here. And so, um, you know, look, it's, uh, th- this is a real black eye, um, although I, I, sadly I don't think it's CIA specific. Um, one of the most frightening parts of this report is the CIA's candid assessment that had WikiLeaks not published these tools, CIA doesn't know that they ever would have figured out they were gone. Um, and, and that really has dramatic operational security consequences, you know, the kind of operational security consequences that, you know, really can get people killed. I mean, you know, this is really, really serious stuff. And so sort of acknowledge the extent to which it's blind to its own security. Um, that said, you know, there is sort of a through line from Snowden to Hal Martin to, to Joshua Schulte, this individual who's been arrested, um, a CIA contractor who's been arrested for the Vault 7 leaks. Um, and that's sort of learning the lesson over and over again that, you know, there's a lot that the intelligence community can do to protect against outside intrusions. Um, there's a lot to do, they can do to make sure that people really are who they say they are, sort of identity verification. Um, but it's really, really difficult to guard against people who have valid access, legitimate access to a system or sensitive information who want to misuse it, that at its core, this is a trust-based system and a trust-based endeavor. And so, you know, I think it's really striking this thing about um, sharing admin um, passwords, Um, you know, that people sort of think maybe Snowden was this like master hacker who took on the NSA. Um, That's not true. You know, these are really, really complicated systems. You have to change your password all the time. Um, Certain terminals, you have to have a cat card or your 
compartment doesn't work here, or you forgot this number, or this different sort of login information. And so I think everybody in the intelligence community has had the experience of thinking, oh, God, like, what was that? I need this. I can't log in. And asking a coworker, hey, can you just log me in and grab this for me? Um, and that's what Snowden did, right? He got his coworkers uh, to log him in, kind of relying on that human desire to want to help people out. Um, and so it, the idea that the exact same vulnerabilities are being exploited over and over again, um, you know, after all this time, I, I do think that raises really, really fundamental questions of, you know, what tools should these agencies be allowed to have if you can't secure them? And and is it fair? Um, and I, I'm one of the strongest advocates for sort of for saying that the intelligence community should be, um, you know, sort of uh, robust and forward leaning and executing its mission. Um, you know, but but if you can't have the baseline assumption that the tools that they develop can actually be kept secure, um, I, I think you have to go back and revisit a lot of policy questions on sort of the first principles of of, you know, what should the intelligence community be doing in this space until it can prove that it's really, really gotten its act together on security? David, I want to ask you, you know, you're somebody who has dealt with, I mean, classified information of the highest, most sensitive orders. You are intimately familiar from your, your previous work in government with, you know, classification authorities, but also the, the steps that people have to take to protect secrets. When I, I was struck by the fact that when I was speaking to former officials in reporting out this story, and this is borne out in the findings of the report itself, one of the things they said was essentially, look, I mean, making a distinction between the CIA's big enterprise systems, which are well protective, but then these individual, what they call mission systems, where one of them was where these sort of top gun hackers, as one guy put it, were working on all of their tools, which has to be segregated from the main networks for a, for a bunch of reasons. Okay, putting that aside. Essentially, the argument was, look, we've tasked these people with under a high pressure environment coming up with tools to break into adversaries, networks to go steal secrets. You kind of have to give them a little bit of leeway if they don't always have the best security on their own network. And I'm kind of curious, like, do you buy that argument? I mean, is that does that resonate as truthful or plausible in your experience? Or does that sound a bit like, you know, people trying to cover up for what was you know, frankly, just a pretty undeniably huge screw up. Well, I don't think it's an excuse and or a justification for what has happened here. I do think it's a real issue. It comes up in a bunch of different contexts. So I remember hearing FBI directors lament the difficulty of hiring really good cyber employees who have never smoked marijuana. Uh, which is a baseline requirement to be an FBI employee. And, you know, there are cultural differences or cultural features of the, you know, hacker community that may be roughly incompatible in general terms with really, really good OPSEC. And the OPSEC that you have to go through is a huge pain in the ass, as Susan was talking about. Um, how liberating to be able to speak in this fashion. Um, <laughs> Come on whenever you want, David. Yeah, it's a safe it's, space. Right, exactly. Uh, it turns off the workforce. And, you know, they're already relatively underpaid as compared to opportunities that await them in the private sector if they have this relevant skill set. And so I think it's a real thing that, um, you know, you have to sort of accept that there are costs with really locking down the operational security for these folks. Um, and it goes against the grain and, you know, so forth. 
just like in general, it's really annoying for young people in the classified workforce to not be able to bring their phones into their workspaces. But it, I don't think it excuses what, what happened here or what happened in general. Um, and I actually think you can look at this thing and position it in historical context um, that, that might be interesting. Is it, I mean, I think you know, beginning the 80s, 90s, the, the U.S., I think, really had, and this is all based just on public information, had a competitive advantage in the cyber realm. They were just, you know, NSA and others were just ahead of the game. And there was kind of a go-go attitude, like a for-profit company expanding into a new market with huge profit margins. Um, and the operations, I think, got out ahead of the compliance uh, and safety structures. And then there are several episodes of getting burned. Um, Susan covered some of those. And competitors developing near-peer capabilities are springing up. And they could detect and possibly steal and repurpose our products and also make their own products. And so the order of the day has become caution with higher operational security and greater restrictions, which is annoying and frustrating to the sort of top gun, whatever you want to call it, workforce that, that operates in the space. And at the same time today, we've got all these technological disruptions like artificial intelligence and uh, maybe 5G with the architecture of networks and the value of the control plane having potential significance. And so more creativity is going to be needed. And that, that pendulum and that tension is going to exist and continue to wax and wane over time. This CIA story seems like a legacy of the period in which we were not quite adjusting fast enough to changed market conditions that required a, a more cautious approach. At least that's how I sort of see it in context historically. Ben. Yeah, I just want to add that the without disagreeing with anything that's been said and specifically without disagreeing with Susan's point that if you can't protect these uh, weapons and they are weapons, you probably shouldn't have them. I do think it's important to appreciate how difficult it is to protect things from your own people. And, you know, in the Cold War era, one of the ways you did that was by watching the other side, right? So if Aldrich James wants to give information to the Soviets and you're watching the Soviets and you're watching their behavior really carefully, you might figure out that you've got a mole, right? But if the modality of release is not giving something to a foreign intelligence service, but, you know, releasing it in any way that sees you see fit, like if you're Snowden giving it to Bart Gelman and uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, and if you're Schulte, you give it to Julian Assange, right, then you don't really have that watch the recipients option because you don't know who the recipients are going to be. And so the question is, how do you protect from the exfiltration by very large numbers of potential employees, you know, one of whom may have uh, sociopathic tendencies? And that's a really hard problem. And you know, I don't know what the solution to it is. Obviously, as as Susan points out, it would start by having not shared, not having shared passwords would would be a place to start, right? You know, two factor authentication, right? The 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 basics were not done here, and yet I do worry that this is an area where 
you know, offense is relatively easy, particularly if you don't mind getting caught. You know, Snowden meant to out himself. Right. Right. And so if you don't, if you don't mind martyrdom, exfiltrating information is, you know, preventing all instances of that is very hard. And now that we're sufficiently miniaturized that you can get stuff out on thumb drives or on, you know, something smaller than that, you know, the little mini, uh, mini SD cards are really small now. It's not an easy problem to think about how do you prevent large amounts of material. And I mean, when I say large amounts, I mean terabytes of material from leaving large buildings with very large numbers of people. And just to put a kind of fine point on that, I mean, Josh Schulte has been, he's been accused of this. He, uh, uh, there was a mistrial in his um in his case, and hopefully the government hopes they say they're going to retry him later on in the year. But whoever did this, I think the evidence is pretty clear, whether it was Schulte or, or he says someone else, perhaps in his office. The compounding problem here is that you had people who were trained in how to cover up their tracks, right? So in this case, if in fact it was an insider, you had someone who was not only trained on how to break into government computer systems, but then how to leave no trace or make it look like they were never compromised. And that goes to what Susan was saying about the report, finding that you know, if not for being published on WikiLeaks, the CIA may never have known that the material was gone at all. Uh, so it just strikes me as an incredibly vexing problem for how you defend uh, against that. And you know, clearly it didn't work in this case, but just to make the point that that, you know, it's not as though these are um, simplistic adversaries, I guess, that, that agencies are up against. Um, speaking about non-simplistic, that segue sucks. We're just going to go with it. We're going to move on to another topic. This might be the first rational security where we've talked about two stories I wrote. Look at you. You're on fire. You're increasingly relevant, Shane. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Great to see. Oh, so good. You love to you see know, it. We call it the Stash Strikes Back edition, but it's really the All About Shane edition. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's what I need. I just need a podcast about me. All about yeah. me. I, I could All talk about, about exciting things I did. I got a haircut today. That was exciting. Ooh, nice. Wow. That's the third in, subject. First Shane's time in haircut. three months. So my haircut. Fixer, it didn't happen. <laughs> that should be my object lesson. Uh, but we are out today. Uh, actually, I guess it was technically yesterday with a, uh, a big story that my colleague Missy Ryan and I did uh, that started with the kind of a, a, the question of how is the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic likely to affect national security. And the frame that we approached this with was, uh, as I'm sure listeners of the podcast will know, as all of you all know, because some of you lived through it, after the 9-11 attacks, there was a fundamental reorientation, I think, of much of the functioning of government around not just national security, but counterterrorism. We set up new departments. We created new authorities. Uh, we passed new laws. And what we wanted to know was, is there going to be a similar recalibration around the threat of pandemics? And we talked to 29 current and former officials and experts to come up with sort of their big takeaways and recommendations. And, and one of them I actually want to start with talking about with David you were in government uh, at the Justice Department, uh, if memory serves, on 9-11. I think physically, literally at Maine Justice, right? 
Yep. When it happened. And you were obviously present at the creation for many of these new authorities and agencies that were kind of designed for this purpose of stopping other an attack and witnessing this this massive reorientation of government. One of the things that I was struck by in this reporting was that to a person, not one person advocated that we talked to creating another big department. There was one individual who said he would reserve judgment on it until a you know a, a 9-11 style commission uh, weighed in on the subject, but he was skeptical um, yeah. uh, that he would he would vouch for this. And I was just struck by that. Essentially, people saying DHS and even ODNI could be viewed as overreactions that the government spent a lot of time reorganizing and creating bureaucracies that ended up distracting or absorbing energy away from the task at hand. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you share that hesitation now in the face of pandemics to think about reorganization and, and building new departments or, or trying to kind of reorganize the org chart, uh, if you're also skeptical that that is a smart approach for trying to protect us from the next one of these big outbreaks. Yeah, I think I share the skeptical view of the other uh, 29 people. Um, I mean, I to be clear, I do think structure is important to function. Uh, so I know there are some people who think it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. I, I think it does. Good structures do facilitate good operations and policy development and the sort. But but really big new structures where you just you know merge together lots and lots of different operational elements uh, from far and wide, I think succeed well about as often as really big corporate mergers succeed and take about as long if they're going to succeed to gel. And I say this as someone who was there on 9-11, both before and after doing national security and who uh, you know uh, also worked at AOL Time Warner shortly after that famous merger occurred. So I'm, I'm skeptical of these big things. I do think some structures are important and have worked. I have a, obviously a huge bias, so take this with a grain or a shaker of salt, but the National Security Division, which we created after 9-11 uh, on a much smaller scale than DHS or ODNI, I think really did work uh, because it had a clear mission and then a appropriate set of all authorities within DOJ to fulfill that mission. It's not clear to me what the analog for that, if there is one, would be in the pandemic world. It would be good to just get CDC up and running really well and start with that. So I, I'm, I share the skepticism because I just think it's really hard to build brand new structures in government as it is in the corporate world. And most of the time, it doesn't work out. I would like to add to that, that there is an important difference between the two examples that David describes or between. Absolutely. So when you're talking about the DNI's office, which I think most people agree kind of didn't work, um, or at least didn't work as imagined, you know, the logic of it was the 9-11 commission saying somebody has to be in charge. Uh, the language that the 9-11 commissioners used to use was who's carrying the football, right? And, you know, interjurisdictionally between FBI and CIA when somebody's crossing into the in the border, they were very much looking back and saying, no one person is in charge here. Let's create the one person in charge. But then they created the one person in charge and then didn't give that person the authority, right? And so the CIA director ceased to be the DCI, 
but still ran the CIA and the NSA director still ran the NSA and the FBI director still ran the FBI. And on top of all of that, there was layered this other office that had some budgetary responsibility and briefed the president, but actually didn't carry the football in any really meaningful sense. By contrast, when the Justice Department, and David knows more about this subject than just about anybody, but when the Justice Department created or when Congress created NSD, it was to consolidate all of the components that were doing the work of national security. So they took the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, which does the FISA applications, and they took prosecutors who were doing the national security cases, and they took uh, the components that were advising intelligence components, and they consolidated them, and they created not all of the authority, but a lot of the authority and the responsibility in the same location. And so then you actually get the synergies. You get the command responsibilities. You get the the ability actually to carry a football. And NSD has been able to do all kinds of things that the Justice Department was not previously able to do because it's actually running cases from end to end. So if you say, what's the analogy to that in the coronavirus context? Uh, There is none because so many different things are done in the name of, are you going to consolidate the CDC and the FDA, right? No, you're not going to do that. They do wildly different things, both of which are relevant to pandemic preparedness. Uh, Are you going to consolidate all kinds of local health authorities in the federal government? No, um, you're not going to do that. And so you could imagine how to create a DNI, but you'd have many of the same problems that you have with the DNI, which is that you might create the the office where you pick up the phone and call, but it's not going to have the responsibilities and that's going to impair it. Yeah. I think Ben has got an interesting point there. I mean, DHS and ODNI are definitely different and differentiable here. I think DHS, many people think is pretty hard to defend or praise, no matter how you look at it. For ODNI, I think this is not prescriptive, but it has, I think, ended up serving a role, uh, mainly, I think, from liberating the director of CIA from having to manage the budget and administrative elements of of the whole intelligence community uh, so that he or she can focus on the core work of the agency. So, you know, Nobody thinks ODNI is really the boss of the IC. Can you imagine the DNI sort of trying to you know, push around the Secretary of Defense, for example? John Negroponte, the first DNI, left that position to become Deputy Secretary of State, which tells you something about the relative hierarchy. But it has, I think, in a way, adapted to fill a role and potentially add some value. Again, that's not prescriptive. It's not, I think, what its creators had in mind. It's just an interesting way to see how the bureaucracy of the federal government can adapt sometimes to, uh, to change circumstances and find a way to, to fill a gap. I mean, I think a little bit where 
misdiagnosing the core or, or assuming um, or taking for granted a misdiagnosis of, of the core issue that happened here. Um, this isn't a 9-11 intelligence failure. Um, we had the intelligence and the president ignored the intelligence. Um, this isn't a failure of institutions with sufficient expertise and institutional credibility. Um, this is the president coming in and casting doubt or preventing those organizations and those experts from speaking candidly and and factually to the American public. And so I think what we're seeing here is the paradox of the Trump administration and, and Donald Trump as president of the United States. And that's that this is where we have a really, really well-designed system of government, that we have a president who can be agile with robust emergency powers and can do things really quickly. We aren't waiting for Congress to approve special funding and change FDA research rules. Right? All of these emergency exemptions and, and statutes and, and, and really the, the sprawling bureaucracy, um, both public health and intelligence and military for that matter, um, you know, is, is designed to help feed all of this information to the top so that the top can act. And there weren't, the failures were not with any of those systems. The failure is when you have a completely incompetent and dishonest president who you vested all these powers in, not just powers that can be abused, as Donald Trump so often does, but powers that can be ignored and wielded ineptly and how harmful that can be to the nation. And so, you know, you can have a lot of conversations about how to best shuffle the bureaucracy. But the bottom line is our system is not designed for a fundamentally incompetent and dishonest executive and an executive who is not responsive to the ordinary political pressures, the ordinary legislative pressures, the ordinary sort of pressures of rationality and decency and wanting to preserve legacy and also just wanting to avoid massive loss of life. And so, you know, I, I don't even think that rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic is, is the right sort of way to think about this. But it, it this is yet another sort of instance that I think forces us to confront the core presumption of our entire system of government. And that if you get that wrong and you elect somebody like this to be president, and God help us if we reelect somebody like this to be president, um, there's no system in the world that's going to function well during this kind of emergency within our constitutional structure if, if that piece it, it has gone bad. Just to kind of put a fine point, too, on what Susan was saying, which was is very much reflected in our reporting in much the same way that people said that they overwhelmingly were opposed to the idea of creating a new federal department and thought that that was unnecessary. You heard over and over again people saying this was not a systems failure. This was a leadership failure. Um, Greg Treverton, actually, who ran the National Intelligence Council <clears throat> for three years, and you know the National Intelligence Council produced intelligence estimates and warnings on pandemics going back to 2000. Uh, he said, as his words, in terms of needless loss of life, I think this is the biggest failure in American history. With COVID-19, we knew lots of things we could have done, like producing tests early on so that we could track and trace the virus, and we just didn't do it. And I think that one of the reasons why there hasn't been, that, that we could detect anyway, this kind of 
almost unstoppable momentum to go do something, change things, build new things the way there was after 9-11 is because people did look at this and said, yeah, we knew this was coming. We knew this could happen. We've been thinking about it for two decades. We have a lot of offices and people and structures and capacity and capability set up for this. And they just they, the people in charge of them in many cases, failed. And I was just struck by how, you know, some said that more forcefully than others, but I felt that even when people were saying we don't need to do a big reorg and kind of soul searching the way that we did after the 9-11 attacks, they were implicitly criticizing the response or the lack of it, uh, I think, and saying, you know, look, we know we know we could have done better. We just did not in this case. And I think that's why you know, people feel like maybe we don't have to reinvent the wheel this time. So it's a hard way to learn that lesson. Um, all right, let's go to object lessons. Uh, David, you're a guest. Why don't you start? Okay. I recommend the July-August edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, which has got some really interesting articles from some heavy hitters, including Bob Gates previewing his newest book. And apropos of our last conversation, Gates says that the uh, National Security Council uh, organizational structure has outlived its usefulness and uh, we need to do something different. So I recommend this magazine as beach reading for all of your summers. Ooh, wow. Beach reading. <laughs> Super fun. It'll keep you socially distant from everyone else on the beach. Yeah, you won't. If you have this book in your hands, probably people will stay six feet away. Oh, Lord. Uh, Susan, what's your object? So my object lesson is I'm fairly certain the first and last time I will ever use an article from The Intercept uh, as my object lesson, um, but I'm making an exception for this one. Um, so this is an article by Ryan Grimm that came out on June 15th, and it's this um, a little bit of an insider account of an episode that occurred recently on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals sort of email listserv. Um, and Judge Lawrence Silberman, um, who's sort of a, a legal luminary who sits on the court, um, sent a sort of reply-all message um, to his various colleagues colleagues and administrative staff and their clerks um, criticizing the proposal by Senator Elizabeth Warren um, to require that any military bases named after Confederate generals uh, be renamed. Um, and, and his uh, email, shall we say, um, is insensitive at best um, and reveals some pretty problematic base assumptions at worst. The email went unreplied uh, on this listserv um, for a full day until a nameless uh, law clerk decided to reply all um, and say that he is one of only five African-American clerks uh, who, who are uh, on the entire circuit um, and that he felt compelled to talk about his ancestors, his experience, um, and, you know, uh, to address uh, Judge Silverman's claims. Um, I, I just think it's a, such a remarkable sort of a moment of courage um, for a clerk to sort of stand up by name um, to, to somebody of this stature, somebody who's in a really, really vulnerable entry-level position. Um, it, it's just a, it's a really, really courageous thing to have done. Um, it's a real shame um, to Silverman's colleagues that they uh, allowed their clerks to be in that position where the only person who spoke out uh, needed to be 
a law clerk. Um, although apparently uh, this clerk's uh, email did sort of release the floodgates. Um, and so I, I just think it's a it's sort of a really remarkable example of um, you know the the power of speaking out and um, you know even in in um, really disparate power structures um, that one person who uh, sees something that they feel is wrong and and speaks um, you know politely and compassionately but um, but directly um, that, that that's you know this this really impactful thing um, and so I'm just I'm I don't know who this uh, clerk's name is um, he's asked to remain anonymous um, but just kudos to that person and, and I really do think it's worth uh, reading his email in its entirety um, which is uh, excerpt on this intercept article all right and that is the first and last time you may ever reference an intercept article. <laughs> I think their heads are going to explode. It brought me we no only pleasure. We to do it once, Susan. So you've now used your time and there's no further uh, permission for you to ever cite an Intercept article. I regret nothing. Now, now I'm sure we will talk about other Intercept articles on the podcast. Glenn Greenwald will, will tweet, though Susan Hennessy is an evil conspirator for the NSA, She's right about this. I have to concede <laughs> that she... <laughs> um, my object is actually a twofer. I have two movie recommendations. Folks know I love to make movie recommendations. And even though we're not like really under lockdown anymore, like, you know, uh, do yourself a favor. These are good ones. Uh, the first one actually was recommended to me by a listener, a friend of ours, Catherine Voyles. Uh, great film, The Spy Gone North which is a Korean film, South Korean film, about a South Korean intelligence operation from the mid-1990s where they inserted an agent into North Korea to spy on the nuclear program. Based on a true story, I can't say how much of it deviates from the true story, um, but it's terrific. Uh, it was a, This agent was codenamed Black Venus. That may ring a few bells for espionage buffs and historians in the audience. Anyway, great movie directed by Jong Bin Yoon. Check that out. And the other one, which people who know my my fascinations and proclivities will appreciate, The Vast of Night. Have you guys heard of this movie? Has anyone heard of this movie? Okay, I'm just going to read it to you, the description. In the twilight of the 1950s, on one fateful night in New Mexico, young switchboard operator Faye and charismatic radio DJ Everett discover a strange audio frequency that could change their small town and the future forever. Lights in the sky, people. You know where I'm going with this. Oh, God. It's so good. It's so, it's seriously, it is such a romantic UFO movie. It's wonderful. (laughs) It's like Stand By Me and Close Encounters of the Third Kind got together. It's nostalgic. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's scary as hell, actually. Uh, Andrew Patterson is the writer director on this. It's very good. By the way, speaking of those, that genre film, I went back and watched Contact the other day. Yeah, it's good. It, but it doesn't, yeah, I don't know. It goes to my maybe doesn't hold up. It's not as it. bad like as Outbreak. It's good, but the dialogue is bad. It's real bad. Is it? <laughs> yeah, but for what it's trying to do, it, it captures my heart. Anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, The Spy Gone North and The Vast of Night. Check them out. Ben, what's your object? My object is the latest dividends paid by my experiment in opening my Twitter DMs. I received the following note from uh, one Nate Miller, who has given me permission to read it. Quote, I'm not sure if your open DM experiment is still going on or not, but I thought I'd give it a try. 
I started listening to Lawfare a few years ago. I got hooked on the depth of expertise and enjoyed being forced to consider things from a national security standpoint, which was somewhat absent from my personal politics. As I've progressed through medical school and thus have progressively less free time, I've had to cut down from several episodes of Lawfare per week to one episode of Rational Security. One of my favorite things about Rational Security is the way it has brought my dad and me together. We don't always agree on all of our politics, but I thought Rational Security might offer an analysis we could both appreciate, so I recommend he give it a listen. Reviewing the last week's episode is now a regular installment of our weekly check-ins. And for Father's Day this year, my dad asked my mom, sister, and me to listen to David Frum on Trumpocalypse, which is a Lawfare podcast episode, and come ready to share our thoughts. That's all he wanted for Father's Day, but I was hoping I could do him one better. If you could somehow slip in a Father's Day shout out to him, Mark Miller, Interrational Security, I know he'd love it. If not, we'll still enjoy the show every week, and I hope you and your family are able to stay safe and sane through this quarantine. So Nate Miller is a uh, and his father, Mark Miller, to whom this shout out is uh, especially dedicated, are model uh, citizens for you all coming together with family <laughs> through discussions from diverse political perspectives of rational security. I can't think of a higher reason to do a show like this. And so nope, uh, to Mark he Miller can't think of anything uh, and all fathers out there who are spending their Father's Day discussing lawfare content with their children and expecting them to come prepared with a point of view. Right. Uh, this object lesson is dedicated to you, and especially <laughs> Mark and Nate Miller. Well, I know that I am doubly honored now that this is my first episode of Rational Security to hear a heartwarming tale of that sort, and it gives me an idea for Father's Day for my father. So there you go. You're going to send him the podcast? Well, it's a little self-promoting, but what the hell? I love it. We are bringing families together. Happy Father's Day. We are healing the rifts that divide families one podcast at a time. Uh, And we're so glad that you could join us for this edition, which has now sadly come to an end. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. As you know, you can find our show page on lawfareblog.com. You can find... um, uh, uh, mannequins to stand in for your Father's Day visit uh, if you are socially distancing right now at lawfaredummies.store That's really weird, Shane. <laughs> did you guys hear man- about this? You know the restaurant that put mannequins in. Did you hear about this? I did and I thought of yes. you. Yes, it's one of our favorite places. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. <laughs> they filled up the empty tables with mannequins. That's kind of um, awesome. So awesome. Oh, my God. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us, of course, on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. Our show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by John Bolton and his solo spoken word band, uh, Mustache Come Lately. <laughs> I like it. It's good. I yeah. like it. It could work. It could probably work, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, Sophia Yan would not play for that it's band. Under kind of circumstances. 70s lounge music. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like with, this, like the, with the big stash up there and like 
peanuts caught in it or something. I don't know what. Just, yeah, exactly. Bleh. Anyway, read the book. Don't read the book. On behalf of my great friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and David Chris joining us from afar, I'm Shane Harris. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Happy Father's Day, Mr. Miller. Bye-bye. 